welcome back. Uh, it's another episode of your favorite podcast. Hopefully, it's the What Happened podcast. What episode are we on? Oh, it's definitely not enough to lose count so far, but that's I a good question. <laughs> uh, it's episode seven, and then I'll edit it in right there. Oh, okay. So yeah, episode seven. There it is. I mean, I feel like I could just let me count. Let me count. Oh, it's it's seven. Are it's, we sure? Confirm seven. Well, I only have six posts on Instagram. This is number seven. That's you heard it here first, folks. Episode seven of the What Hi- Happened podcast. Oh, and we're talking about some crazy stuff today. Yeah, I have no idea what your story is. We're talking about some friggin' spy stuff. All right, awesome. Um, we actually went with a theme this week, yes. not rogue like last week. So I guess the theme is um, spy shit. Spy shit, it is. Oh, and have you ever heard of a theremin? Uh, no. Okay, well... is it? A, I assume it's a man. It sounds like a spice to me, but... <laughs> like human. It's a man and... Uh, listeners, I'm going to cut here so that I can play some uh, copyright uh, theremin music to Owen. The theremin, Owen. It was developed in 1920 by none other than Leon Theremin. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, he named Brand it after name. himself. Yeah, I would. Um, it was initially used to measure science stuff, uh, but then it was Wait, discovered science stuff. Science stuff. Like what? <laughs> you can't just say science. Uh, but then it was discovered to, that it could uh, be an instrument as well. But Owen, what if I told you that the theremin was at one point part of a KGB plot? Is that why it was invented, or it was just utilized by the KGB? We'll get there. Okay. So, nineteen or eighteen ninety six, Leon Theremin was born in Saint Petersburg, Russia. Uh, Theremin was a gifted scientist even at a young age. When he was only seventeen, he had a lab in his house. Most like seventeen year olds in America that have labs just start meth labs in say, South yeah. Florida. Yeah. So this guy is already off to a good start. Real Dexter's laboratory vibe. He would experiment with uh, high-frequency circuits and magnet fields. So his parents just like let him play with electricity in the basement? That's what it sounds like. Okay, good parents. So, so the dude's pretty freaking smart, even yeah. when he's young. Uh, when World War I broke out, the uh, theremin went to... Oh, I, practiced it. I practiced this, and it's still not going to go well. Is it Russian? Uh, Nikolayev... <laughs> <laughs> didn't expect that <laughs> continue <laughs> nikolayevska military engineering school oh no where's that <laughs> russia okay <laughs> it's in russia somewhere um so he went to the like this school normally only accepted fourth year college students but okay. he went in his first year so he was what like 18 so a year after the basement experience something like that. experiments so he's already there three years early okay he uh graduated that went to the uh Electronic school for officers, graduated, and then got a radio engineer diploma, all in the same year. Busy so he, year. he's a, he's a, he's got a big noggin on him. Then eventually the Bolshevik Revolution broke out. Uh, and, yes. And Theremin did a ton of other badass stuff, but we're not going to talk about that because we're not here to just learn about Mr. Theremin. We're here to learn about the Theremin. Actually, I'm going to mention it. 
because it is kind of cool. He was working at this like radio tower and the Bolsheviks were coming to take it over. So he just like yucked a bunch of explosives on it and blew it up and like ran away. It was really cool. Anyways. <laughs> um, uh, so <clears throat> after he got out of like all his military work, uh, okay. he just started inventing on his own. I so he eventually made the theremin and it was initially used to measure the density of a gas in a room. Uh, the device was essentially a box with two antennas, one that would stick up like vertically, and then another one that made like a big loop on the side. And um, yeah, so it was used to measure gas. So that's the science we were talking about earlier. Um, and Theremin decided to add a noise component to the machine. Would that like tell you how much gas is in a room? So yeah, he added like a whistling feature. Now when do we mean gas? The density of a gas. Okay. So, all right. Okay. I just didn't know what you meant specifically by that. But like okay. how dense the like a tank full of helium is. I don't know. I'm not a freaking scientist. Fair enough. <laughs> so he added a whistling feature that would indicate uh, the value of whatever I was measuring. Okay. Basically, like the higher the pitch, the less dense the gas or something like that. But Theremin discovered that while he was using the machine, the pitch would change while he was interacting with it. Uh, Theremin noticed that the pitch was directly correlated to his proximity to the device. Okay. It was discovered that by passing your hand over the antennas, it would disturb the machine's electromagnetic field. This uh, machine would then assign a pitch and a volume to those disturbances. And uh, Theremin thought to himself, boy, a fella sure could make a real wacky instrument out of this. So... He moved to the U.S. and uh, started the process of mass-producing and patenting this new instrument that he called the theremin. Did he move to the U.S. specifically to patent this? Um, I think there was better opportunity to sell it, to like create and sell it. Okay. So that's why he went there. So yeah, eventually in 1928, the uh, theremin was patented and sci-fi movies were changed forever. Oh, is that like the noise in the sci-fi movies? Yeah, you know, they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a just, theremin. It's just some dude on a theremin? Yeah. Wow, okay. They're like synonymous with sci-fi movies. That's your phone that you just dropped. Let me get that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, while staying in the U.S., uh, theremin had a lab in New York City, and there he would refine the theremin and uh, go on to make more instruments, like the Rhythmicon. Is that as uh, famous as the theremin? I, no, I've never heard of it. I haven't either. But I haven't heard of the theremin until now. I've heard its work. But, Owen, you can't have a story about a Russian dude without the KGB getting involved. So, <laughs> in 1938, theremin would return to Russia for sort of unknown reasons. But then, while he was there, he was kidnapped. <clears throat> by who, you ask? I assume the KGB. The freaking KGB. Was it the NKVD? I'll talk about them in my story. It's like the predecessor to the KGB. Uh, I think it's just KGB at this point. Awesome. So KGB put uh, Theremin to work in a gulag, but because Oof. of his big old brain, he wasn't smashing rocks. Do you think he was, was he kidnapped for his work or was he kidnapped because he like came from the U.S.? He was kidnapped for his work because okay. they, they put him um, and two other scientists in charge of making the thing. Like the the rock dude from uh, the Fantastic Five. 
Fantastic Four. Fantastic Four. That's why, man. I'm sorry. Even. I mean, he has two guys. <laughs> uh, yeah, they uh, they just made the bald dude from the Shield. I preferred my reference. That's the but... guy who played that. Who played the thing? Oh, okay. All right. I, I, what's I the, what's his name? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're gonna skip around a little bit. So they're okay. making this thing. Eventually, August fourth, nineteen forty-five, Vladimir Lenin. The oh, it's not that Lenin. Oh, it's not. Oh, no. He's dead at this point, I think. Because yeah, this is Stalin the, times. Didn't he die in the Bolshevik Revolution? Right? Was it? I don't know. Anyway, literally. There, no there's a quick sidebar. Did you know that he's still preserved? You can yeah, like go yeah, yeah. see like a him yeah, in a his, Sleeping Beauty. His body looks perfect. Yeah, and he's just in like a glass case. It's really creepy. <laughs> yeah, I've seen pictures. It's unnerving anyways august uh, 4th 1945 vladimir lenin the all-union pioneer organizer i don't know what that is okay it's not that important um he went up to the u.s ambassador averil harriman to present a gift now if you're like me i don't like to take things from strangers unless it's like money music i i'll generally say no okay do you say bunny money or like a gift from my mother on Christmas. But if some random guy comes up to me, he's like, hey, I have a gift for you. I'm just going to be like, no, thanks. So to drum up some sympathy, um, Vladimir Lenin brought in like a bunch of kids from a Russian youth program to present this uh, gift. So he had to take it. And yeah. And quick sidebar. I imagine a Russian youth program as a bunch of eight-year-olds wearing tank tops, smoking cigarettes in the woods. Just like carving yeah, sticks. Yeah, like Adidas sweatpants on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? Um, <laughs> so they, uh, the gift that they presented to the U.S. ambassador, it was a large wooden seal carved with the U.S. coat of arms. Okay. So it's a big uh, big circular disc with like an eagle carved into it. It's pretty cool looking. So Ambassador Harriman, naturally, hung the seal in his office. And it would stay there for another seven years. Um. And eventually, in 1951, some weird things started happening. While monitoring Air Force channels, radio operators would overhear conversations that would appear to be coming from the embassy. But anytime they looked around in the embassy, they could never find any like hidden microphones or anything. Um, you always make fun of me for losing my spot. Yeah, I made my font really big, and I still lost my oh, spot. Oh, you made fun of me for making my font small. <laughs> Full circle, Ryan. Everything comes full circle. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, anytime they would look around, they couldn't find any hidden microphones. And it was really hard to find any like signals being broadcast. So in 1952, it was uh, discovered that this thing that was doing the weird shenanigans, uh, the Russians called it the reindeer. Um, it was the seal that was hung in the uh, ambassador's office. Makes sense. And it was found to be a Russian listening device. Damn it, it was there for seven years. Seven years. Whoops. <laughs> and it was so hard to find because of Leon Theremin's technology. Uh, so remember how we were talking about how the theremin, you can pass your hand through its electromagnetic field. And it makes a noise, though, right? And then it makes a noise. But this uses the same technology. Without the noise. Without the noise. So if you're in its electromagnetic field, it'll start recording and broadcasting a signal to Moscow. That's why it was so hard to find. That's because it would Genius. it would only activate if you were right next to it. Jeez. So wow. they're looking around and they're like, where's the freaking microphones? And there's no signal being transmitted because there's no one freaking sitting right next to it. Wild. 
So yeah, um, the U.S. like discovered this bug in 1952. Okay. But they didn't like tell anyone about it until 1961. Ooh, wow. Um, it got like brought up in like a U.N. Security Council meeting. You know the U-2 jets. Like the band has jets. <laughs> I know they're pretty rich, but... <laughs> no, it was like a big thing. Like, Russia shot down a U-2 spy plane. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, basically, Russia was like, hey, the Americans are spying on us. Aren't they such dirtbags? Oh, and then the, and US, then was the like, U.S. was like, you've uh, had this thing in our office for years. <laughs> Did they keep it in the office? No, they removed oh, it. Oh, it would have been, been cool if you keep it in there, and then you, you know, you... What's that called? We are not bombing Moscow. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um... But back to Theremin. Uh, he was released from the Gulag in 1947, but he can st- uh, he still continued to work with the KGB until 1966. That was a long time. I wouldn't want to work with... Someone a, who, like, enslaved you? Yeah, that, like, literally put me in a prison and made me make things. Yeah. Um, I mean, they could have offered great benefits. Yeah, they have great dental. <laughs> <laughs> and it comes with vision, you know? <laughs> um, uh, after he quit the, ther- uh, the KGB, Theremin worked at Moscow... Uh, in the Moscow Conservatory of Music and later became a professor of physics at the Moscow State University. Uh, while he was still alive, he invented some other instruments like the uh, this, the electric cello. Qu- All right, wait, wait, question for you. Speaking of instruments, did he ever like patent his original design? Like, yeah, was he it got u- patented in 1928, Was it used dude? for music during his time of like when he was alive or was it yeah, like... Okay, yeah. all right. He would like... He would travel around and like um, show it off, show it off, and like okay. play places. Oh, that's pretty cool. Just going like, it's a weird instrument. Um, eventually, he died in 1993 at the age of 97. 97. 97. But Owen, oh, the theremin will live on. Just because of sci-fi. Uh no, people like it. Like regardless, of, like the that video I just showed you was a dude playing over the rainbow on it. I have nothing to say. It's just so, yeah. Theremin. Yeah. That's the story of Leon Theremin. Pretty cool. And how it was used to spy on the U.S. government. It's actually wild. KGB does a lot of weird shit. I mean, I'm sure we could find a whole bunch of uh, CIA, CIA stuff as yeah, well. Yeah, you know, so. selling crack to black people, but There's we're that. not going to talk about yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, what's that project on in um, Long Island? Oh, MK Ultra. Yeah, yeah. That's not Long Island. It was. It was. I'm pretty sure it was at the end of uh, Long Island. Oh, I thought that was the Manson one. I don't know. Either way, there was a space on Long That's not what we're talking about today, Ryan. <laughs> All right? We're talking about overseas CIA. The KGB. Okay. It's just the overseas, you know? Okay. The other one. All right. So, I don't know if you know anything about Ernest Hemingway. Is he the guy who liked to... He Oh, he was in Midnight in Paris with Owen Wilson. I have no idea who you're trying to reference here. You mean Ben Stiller? <laughs> Dodgeball? No. <laughs> no, you ever see Midnight in Paris? Uh, yeah. Yeah, and he goes and he meets Ernest Hemingway? Wait, what? You've clearly never seen Midnight in Paris. I, I mean, alright, I watch movies, but not nearly, like, as much as you do. And I also, like, dude, I can't retain what I had for breakfast. Okay, Midnight in Paris. Owen Wilson walk around Paris at midnight, gets transported back to the 20s, meets, yeah. oh, meets you, you, you Ernest had me Hemingway. watch this movie, yeah. No, I did. What? Yeah, you talked about it like a year ago, and you're like, you gotta watch it, and I watched it. Yeah, it's a great Strictly movie. Strictly because it's Owen Wilson. He falls in love with a French girl. Kachow, am I right? <laughs> 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 oh, the deep cuts right there. Yeah. 
<laughs> All right, so back to Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> oh, boy. All right, so uh, Ernest Miller Hemingway uh, is regarded as one of the greatest American novelists of all time. But, Ryan, was he the greatest Soviet spy? He was a Soviet spy? Your face. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, so, uh, Ernest Hemingway, born in Oak Park, Illinois, on July 21st, 1899, to Clarence Hemingway and Grace Hall Hemingway. 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 I, I, I don't know, man. Did you know our school wasn't actually named after him? Our yeah, elementary it's school. different. Yeah, it's apparently named after one of the first residents of our town, which is like a lot less cool. Interesting. Yeah, found that out last night. I was talking to my mom. Wow. Yeah, just info for you, man. Um, so he was named after his maternal grandmother because the couple, after having Ernest, ended up living with, uh, like, the maternal grandmother took them in. All right, gra- yeah, do I, yeah, am I saying grandmother? Yeah, grandmother. Okay. I think of my grandfather because <laughs> Ernest is not, <laughs> I don't know, man, 1800s, who knows about names? Could be a lady named Ernest. Could have been a typo. <laughs> Either way, Ernest was named after his maternal side's parents. Okay. We'll go there. Um, so Ernest lived in the U.S. for most of his 61 years of life. Uh, he was known as an Advent traveler, though. So he spent years, like, basically everywhere. Yeah, didn't he, like, go hunting in Africa a lot? Yeah, so he was a big outdoorsman. Um, he's, like, renowned for his uh, his love of the ocean as well as fishing. Like, he used to do deep-sea fishing a lot. Fun fact, his younger brother uh, started his own uh, country on a boat. Where? The ocean. Well, yeah, but, like... Atlantic, Pacific. In the water. Okay, just an ocean. I How big know. was this boat? I saw the headline, that's it. Do you think someone intervened? I don't know. <laughs> I only saw the headline. I have so many questions. All right, um, so throughout his 61 years, he ended up having four wives in total. Naturally. Um, he was a player. Either a player or just no one liked or him just enough. just like a dirtbag husband. Exactly, yeah, yeah, it could go either way. Um, so throughout his years, he worked as a war correspondent in the 1920s, uh, and he was also a journalist during the Spanish Civil War. Uh, also, I believe, in the 1920s. Oh, that's kind of cool. Um, so he was unable to work. Uh, so, excuse me, World War One came around. He got drafted. He wasn't eligible because he had poor eyesight. Okay. Um, but he was, like, 17 or 18 at the time, and, like, you know, every single person his age was going in, so he felt he felt bad for it. Um, so he signed up with the Red Cross. Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm just watching you attempt to balance water. <laughs> Yeesh. I'm sorry. Oh, God, that was loud for me. <laughs> um, so he signed up with the Red Cross because uh, he was unable to actually fight in the. Um... Sorry, I can just hear you swallow from all the way over here. Jeez, guy, we got a podcast to record. Um, he was unable to fight in World War One, so he felt bad. So he signed up for the Red Cross. He was enlisted as quote an ambulance driver, which oh, yeah. you and I love to be called because. It hurts but, my then, feelings but then again, every time. EMT, he probably was just nameless. EMTs and medics weren't like around until I think like the fifties or sixties. He was just like a nurse in the back. Yeah, and he was just like legit the driver for it. Yeah. Um, so uh, at the age of eighteen, uh, he served on the front lines in Italy, and he was actually like seriously wounded by a mortar. Fight. Oh, in Gallipoli. I. It just said Italy. I don't know. It's a Mel Gibson movie. Look it up. Either way, he was seriously injured by a mortar strike, and um, he was quoted as saying, "Like you know, when you're a kid." In war, you think you're invincible until you almost die, and then you're like, hey, I'm not invincible. That was essentially his quote. It really wasn't worth quoting. Yeah, Mortar will do that to you. Mortar will do that. Um, so even though he was seriously injured, he apparently kept fighting on, and due to this, he won an Italian uh, like army medal because he just like, or he, or he wasn't fighting, but he like kept like, 
he was quite, <laughs> there was this like one thing of him talking about how he was like picking up shredded remains of like the nurses and stuff because like the germans or whoever just like decided to mortar a uh, red cross Yuck. hospital yeah not great um so uh after this he settled down was a war correspondent in the 20s he was also a spanish civil war uh journalist um but he was writing from about 1920 to 1950 was his prime time of writing um, he is best known for his works um, called A Farewell to Arms, For Whom the Bell Tolls, and The Old Man and the Sea. Those oh, are like yeah. his most famous works. Um, I think in total he wrote seven novels, six short stories, and two nonfiction works. Never read a single one. Uh, I think I read For Whom the Bell Tolls. I don't know. I've heard the ACDC song. Does that count? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think like most of his works were based off his time either being a journalist in the Spanish Civil War or um, from his time in World War One. Gotcha. Um, so uh, he was a Nobel Prize winner for literature in 1954. So like I said, very well regarded as one of America's like literary geniuses. Prestigious. Exactly. Um, so how did he become a KGB spy? That's a good question. I totally forgot about that part. Yeah, a lot of people, yeah. that's. I mean, like no one knew about it, so... Um, so anyways, so a former KGB operative, Alexander Veselev, released a book in 2009 called The Rise and Fall of the KGB in America. Now, within this book, um, it released details naming Ernest Hemingway as a Soviet spy. So this was unknown to the world until 2009. Interesting. So uh, Alexander, since he was a former KGB uh, operative, he was allowed to have access to archives dating all the way back to the Stalin era. That's a lot of archives. Yeah, so apparently he, like, just obviously read all of these and then wrote the, wrote the interesting stuff down in this book. Yeah. Um, for most Americans, the most interesting thing was finding out that, like, your beloved author was a freaking Soviet spy. Yeah, they didn't talk about this at all at midnight in Midnight in Paris. When did that movie come out? After 2009. Yeah, I figured. Yeah, yeah it was worth a shot being like, they didn't know. Um, so the book gave us access into the mysterious world of the KGB and its lesser-known predecessor, the NKVD. Um, I honestly, I'll be honest with you. I didn't look up what KGB or NKVD means. I don't actually know. Quick Google on Ryan's behalf there. Stand by. Continue. Stand by or continue. You said two different things. <laughs> you can continue <laughs> um, while you stand by for my facts. So Ernest wasn't a trained spy by any means, right? Uh, but his reputation within the United States meant that he was a very interesting asset for the KGB. Um, no, go ahead. Okay. The KGB stands for the. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the Comitet Gosudarstvenoi What's the rough translation of that? Committee for State Security. <laughs> you probably could have just said that. What about the NKVD? The... Hold on. <laughs> Your Russian accent today is on, on point. The uh oh, that, naturally it's an acronym for the Narodni Komistarat Vnotdenyakdel, the People's Committee for Internal Affairs. Okay, all right. So yeah, those two were basically the spy network for um Russia. It was the KGB was the big, like the bigger one, and then the NKVD was underneath the KGB. Okay. So anyways, this book came out. It released info on the KGB and the NKVD and their works within America, and obviously because Ernest Hemingway was a U.S. citizen, and he was a Soviet spy, his name was released in the book. 
Okay. So um, Ernest obviously was not a trained spy by any means, but because of his reputation within the U.S., they wanted him. They, as in the KGB. Um, Ernest was given the code name Argo. That's kind of cool. It's a pretty cool. Uh, it's like it relates back to like the Greek mythology or something. It's some boat that carries someone somewhere. Oh, isn't that Perseus's boat? Boat? I think so. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. I read it and just didn't write it down because I didn't think. Oh I'd yeah, the Argonauts. It, but... Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. You ever see that old, like that movie from like the fifties? I also Percy and the Argonauts or whatever. It's is called? that also like a? Uh, what am I thinking of? Like that like kids TV show? Isn't that the Argonauts? No, that's the Aquabats. I don't. Still don't think that's it, but. Little Einsteins? Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. I don't know. Anyways, we're getting way off topic on my topic here. Um, so he was given the codename Argo. Uh, Argo, like every codename, was meant to conceal his identity from the ever-prying eyes of the American government. This codename also had another meaning for the KGB. It was essentially to just butter up Hemingway. Make him feel like he was a real spy. So, so, <laughs> wait, so they just give him a cool name so that he would like keep spying for him? Exactly, yeah. I mean, if I was a spy, you better call me, like, I don't know, like, the hammer or something cool like that. The hammer? I don't know. I'm on the spot, man. <laughs> the hammer. Uh, I'm going to call you that from now on. Uh, um, so now what led Ernest to work for the KGB? Did the KGB have blackmail? Was this some kind of, like, crazy Russian um, mind control? Were they just going to pay him? Not even. He did it for free? Yeah. He's a freaking traitor? Yeah. I mean, you ruined what I was going to say, but... Um, so, all right. So according to the archives, uh, found within this book, um, Ernest quote, repeatedly expressed his desire and willingness to help us unquote. Uh, in 1941, he was approached by the NKVD in New York city. Um, NKVD agent, Jacob Golos, Golos, Golos. I don't care. <laughs> he was the one who approached Hemingway in New York city. Okay. Um, so, uh, it is, uh, it is believed that Hemingway was so eager that he didn't receive any payments for his work. And that's how eager he was to work with the KGB. He was head over heels in love with Soviet Russia. I mean, I would have at least asked for some money. I mean, I'll... Yeah, I probably would too, considering, like, they want me to, like, do covert shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, at least minimum wage. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, why did Ernest like the Soviet government so much? You may be asking. That, because I was asking that. Why would a, like, beloved U.S. poet who also kind of sort of didn't really but kind of fought for the u.s in world war one kind of sort of why would he love soviet russia right so in 1936 Ernest, like i said earlier was a journalist for the spanish civil war so he went over to spain watched the civil war it was um fascists against anti-fascists gotcha typical you know antifa that kind of thing um shout out Chaz, am i right yeah um so um Ernest was uh, anti-fascist, and so was the Soviet government. So while Ernest was within Spain watching it, he watched the Soviets supply aid to the anti-fascists. And that kind of won over uh, Ernest. He was like, oh, these are good guys. They're helping out a noble cause by like giving so, tanks and weapons and soldiers. Here's a question, though. Were the like millions and millions of deaths that Stalin caused, were those like public knowledge at this point? Honestly, I don't know, but either way, dude... Argo was buttered up. <laughs> um, so for this reason, it was believed uh, that Ernest gained faith within the Soviet government because he saw them help a cause that he also believed in. Gotcha. Um, so Ernest would begin to have clandestine meetings with Soviet, Soviet agents around the world. 
uh, I don't really think they sent him around the world. It's just Ernest like to travel. And then they were also like, hey, while you're in London, you want to just meet up with this agent? Yeah, like KGB probably has spies everywhere. So yeah. yeah. So um, Havana, Cuba was the most used spot for these rendezvous. Rendezvous. I feel like I'm saying it weird. I don't care. Uh, with Hemingway, uh, Hemingway had a house in Cuba. He was a big um, like Caribbean fisherman, so it made sense for the guy to have a house in Cuba so he could just like spend all of his time in the Caribbean Ocean fishing. Plus, uh, Cuba is a big uh, Soviet hotspot. Also, yes. So it just like worked out for the Soviets that he had a house in Havana. Gotcha. So this was like the main area. Uh, they also went to London, England a lot, which I think is kind of wild because that's like it's a U.S. citizen meeting with KGB in London. It's just weird, you know? Hmm. Um, it's also believed that he was also attempt or they attempted to approach him when he went, like he visited China. Um, but either the KGB couldn't talk to him or couldn't get like a, a private meeting with him. So I like later that year, they uh, intercepted him in New York city. Okay. So this guy has just travels the world cause he's rich and you know, can do what he wants. But apparently one day also qualifies as being a spy if one you do what you want. There. Yeah. Right. So the KGB were known for mysterious assassinations and overthrown governments. So what could Hemingway possibly do for the KGB? He could write like a like a cool book for him. I don't know. So Hemingway had his own ideas for the spy organization. So when he sat down with Olav or whatever I said this dude's name was, um, the guy that met with him in New York City, Hemingway had a proposition. KGB bedtime stories. You know, it's no better than that, to be completely honest with you, because... <laughs> His idea was definitely already figured out by the KGB, but Hemingway was just so pompous. He was like, all right, I have a stack of stamps. I'm going to give these to you, and any agent you want me to meet with, you give a stamp. And if he doesn't present me with that stamp, I'm not meeting with him. Like, I felt like they already had that figured out. Yeah, I mean, right? but like, how does that help the cage? That was literally his idea. Okay. That That's all he contributed <laughs> to the KGB. Nailed it, Ernest. Yeah. Um, so... Believe it or not, Soviet Russia wasn't the only country Hemingway practiced spycraft for. He was a double agent, Ryan. Was he working for the Americans, too? He, after World War II, or excuse me, during, but like primarily after World War II, um, he approached the Office of Strategic Services, the predecessor to the CIA. This was at the start of World War II when he uh, approached them. He was basically like, hey, I'm already a spy. I don't think he said that in his interview, but he was like, hey, I'm a spy. I know what I'm doing. Give me some work. And they I'm freaking like, Argo. You know who you're talking yeah, to? Yeah. And they were like, well, this guy's a, a, he writes great books. So why wouldn't we want him as a spy? So they also enlisted him um, under the, um, the Office of Strategic Services. So he wasn't like a CIA operative, but he was still a quote unquote spy doing so, clandestine shit. But what was he actually doing? So for the U.S., what he did since he had a house in Cuba, he wasn't spying in Cuba because like they didn't, I don't think they trusted him that much. What they did is they were like, all right, Ernest, take your boat out. Just do your normal fishing trip in the Caribbean. But if you see any U-boats, like, haul ass back, report to us, let us know where you saw the U-boats. So it does actually, it kind of okay. makes sense. So it's, he's, he's monitoring for submarines. Yeah, so it's, that's his normal activity anyways. So it did actually help out the U.S., but they also didn't have him doing, like, any covert stuff overseas. They were basically just, like, go out on your boat, fish, and if you see anything suspicious, let us know. That's kind of a nice gig, you know? I would do that. You're I don't know if he was paid. The, yeah, okay. yeah, I'm sure he was paid this time. Um how do I get paid by the CIA to just fish all day? Yeah, right? In the Caribbean. <laughs> yeah, that would be and then amazing. go back to my house in Havana, Cuba. Sounds awesome. Yeah. So Hemingway was just like living life at this point. Um, so all in all, <laughs> Hemingway was just a horrible spy for the KGB. Helped a little bit for the CIA, 
didn't really do a whole lot for the KGB. Um, according to the KGB records for his, his work that, quote, failed to produce any political information. Um, the record continued by saying that Hemingway, quote, never verified in practical work. Wait, so was he attempting to gather information for yeah. the KGB, but he just couldn't? He, he was just a terrible spy. <laughs> but they kept him around because he was Ernest freaking Hemingway. <laughs> Ernest Argo Hemingway. <laughs> so he did. He literally, he tried, and he just could not produce any work for them. And but the work he did produce, they were like, this is probably wrong. And he's just like, no. I mean, the only thing he produced was his stamp idea. Oh, really? And like, I 100% promise you that the KGB already had a way to figure out if their agents were actually meeting with real agents. They'll be holding a blue umbrella. Yeah, Stuff right? like that. Yeah. yeah. No, no. They're going to pass you a stamp. <laughs> Honestly, that's more sus. If I see Ernest Hemingway speaking to a man in a trench coat and he hands him a stamp, I'm going to be like, all right, Ernest is up to something. <laughs> I, I need to tell someone about yeah. this. Uh, so, um, so he worked for, uh, the KGB up until like the end of World War II, like the mid 1950s, because in the 1950s, McCarthyism, uh, yeah, took not, place. Uh, the communists weren't hot in America. Not a good time to be a KGB spy. <laughs> 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 so, uh, McCarthyism, for those who don't know, it's essentially was a witch hunt to find any communist or communist supervisor, supervisor, sympathizer living within the U.S. And like, they were jailed no one was like executed yeah, I they think. Were. but like the, uh, were they executed rosenbergs i don't know there were just like two people that were like someone was like yo they're communists and they're like what and then the u.s executed them uh also mccarthyism real quick not at all what we're talking about is what the crucible was based off of which is like that really famous like poem short story thing that's about the salem witch trials never read it i had to read it you know we live like right next to it so figured you'd read it Oh, Salem? Salem. The, the witch, witch trials. trials? Did you hear me? <laughs> the Crucible is the... God, man. <laughs> I, I never read it, so okay. I um, So, due to McCarthyism, Hemingway is fucking terrified. Right? I would be, yeah. So, um, due to his uh, connections with the Soviet government, this scared the hell out of Hemingway. Um, at the time, he was regarded as a literary genius. He won, He like just won a Nobel Prize. Like This guy's living large, but he has a comp- like a secret alter ego. That if anyone found out, would just completely ruin his career and probably end up with him jailed or killed. Do you think he threw away all his stamps? I would. I would probably burn my stamps. <laughs> I'm not keeping stamps. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, before you pass judgment on Hemingway and his work with the KGB, you have to remember that he joined the KGB in 1941. Okay, so 1941, the U.S. and Russia were technically allies, and they were fighting for a just cause. Yep. That being said, he continued to do it until the 50s, so he stuck with them for about, like, four or five years after our alliance broke. Well, it's probably hard to... Once you're in the KGB, I don't know it's how probably hard to, to get out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, technically speaking, he joined when we were allies. Um, he didn't spill any U.S. secrets, as far as I could tell. Um, he also, even though he was a, quote, double agent, he didn't give the U.S. any secrets from the, the KGB and vice versa. Um, so you could say he was a traitor, but technically speaking, he wasn't. Actually, I think technically he probably still is. Because he's Why? still he working for, for another a foreign, foreign government. government. Yeah. 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 Um, but to him, it wasn't an act of treachery due to the fact that they were allies. Gotcha. So in his mind at the time, it was justified. Turned out not being justified with McCarthyism. Um, so in April of 1961... Hemingway was found by his wife, Mary, in their house in, um, 
Ooh, where was it? So anyways, they moved all over the U.S. because Ernest was freaking paranoid. He couldn't tell his wife why he was paranoid, but everyone just thought this guy was, like, losing his mind. So he was moving all throughout the country, and he ended up in Idaho. So he ended up in Ketchum, Idaho. So oh, Ketchum? Ketchum. Got to catch them all. I was literally just going to say that. <laughs> so, um, like I said, April 1961, Ernest was found in his kitchen holding a shotgun to his face by his wife, Mary. Um, he didn't kill himself. He just told Mary he was, like, trying to, like, clean the barrel. Anyone that's my, ever held a gun. Tongue. Yeah, anyone who's ever held a gun knows you don't point it at your face, especially you gotta, a double barrel shotgun. You got to lick off all the uh, gun, gun powder <laughs> residue. So, um... Uh, Ernest was sent to a nearby hospital and then was then sent to a Mayo Clinic hospital in Minnesota, and he was treated using shock therapy. Very controversial. Correct. Um, some may say it didn't work, and like three days later, it didn't work. <laughs> um, so uh, he arrived home. He was discharged, and he arrived home to Ketchum, Idaho on June 30th, 1961. Just two days later, on July 2nd, 1961, Ernest Hemingway would take his own life using a double barrel shotgun. He was 61 years old, and he left behind his wife, Mary. That's a bummer. Very sad, um, because throughout his life, he was incredibly paranoid, and he couldn't tell anyone why he was paranoid. He believed the FBI was spying on him. He believed people were following him. He believed his phones were tapped. He believed everything. He was a big drinker, too, right? I think because of this, he turned into a big drinker. Like I said, he was an advent sportsman. Like, he was outside all the time, and then his life just devolved, and then he moved to Idaho, which doesn't have a lot of oceanside property, so he wasn't doing any ocean fishing in Idaho. Yeah, probably not a lot of U-boats in Idaho. Also, yes. So, like, his life fell apart on him. Um, Years after his death, declassified records would show that J. Edgar Hoover, the president at the time of his death, was actually spying on Ernest Hemingway. Really? So they caught on? Yeah. So, initially, um, Hoover was interested in um, Ernest Hemingway because he lived in Cuba. He had no idea he had any connections to the KGB. He was just, he wanted someone to tail Ernest because he was living in Cuba. Okay. He had no idea that he was KGB. Um, so while Ernest was still in Cuba, he had a he had a CIA operative on him at all all times. He didn't know then, but he had someone following him the entire time he lived in um, uh, Cuba. Even though he was technically a CIA agent, he had another CIA agent tailing him the whole time. That's a little um, sus. When he was moving around in like the late 50s, early 60s, uh, his phones were constantly tapped, and he always had a team of at least two FBI operatives following him at all times. No one believed him, though. Huh. Yeah. So, um, up until 2009, no, one's besi- no one besides Ernest and other fo- former Soviet KGB agents knew Ernest's past. His wife didn't know. No one in the family knew. Just Ernest. Um... Unfortunately, what he did for the Soviets are unknown. Uh, it didn't. It wasn't said in the book, and it's kind of impossible to get hands on. You know, KGB. You know, intelligence. But... You know what, Owen? For the sake of this podcast, I propose that you and I break into the Kremlin to find out what Ernest Hemingway was up oh, to. God, what um, what uh, what Tom Cruise movie was that? Ghost Protocol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he runs away, and the Kremlin explodes behind him. Great movie. Let's not do that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so anyways, um, due to what was released, we know that he, like I said earlier with those quotes, literally had no practical work for the KGB. Um, and the only thing he truly did in Spycraft with the America or with the KGB was report on U-boats, and I have no idea if he actually found a U-boat. But yeah, um, that is the life and death of Ernest Hemingway. His home in Ketchum 
is currently owned by Community Library, which is a privately funded public library, and it is the last undeveloped property in the town. So I don't think it's open to the public. Oh, so it's not like a like Paul Revere House or I, anything like so that? So I tried to look it up. Like, I looked up Community Library, and then I looked up, like, his address. His address is listed as unrestricted, or restricted, excuse me, so you can't actually find the specific address of his house anymore. And it's owned by this private company, so I don't think the private company has tours. Okay, step one, break into the Kremlin. Step two, break Idaho. into Ernest Hemingway's house <laughs> in Idaho. I've always wanted to go to Idaho. I don't know why you Yeah, I was shaking would. my head, don't worry. Yeah. Um. But yeah, that is the life and death of Ernest Argo Hemingway. That was very interesting. I had no idea. Yeah, I literally didn't know either, which is just wild. And the fact that it came out in 2009, which is what, like, almost, that's like 50 years after his death. That's insane. That's crazy. So, yeah, that's all I have for today. Well, if you enjoyed uh, the story of the theremin being uh, used as a spy device and uh, Mr. Hemingway being used as a spy man, Make sure to follow us on uh, Instagram at what happened underscore pod um, or on Twitter at uh, official underscore WHPC. And uh, hey, big news. We have a Patreon. Maybe you're um, a weirdo that also likes weird history like us and you got a couple extra bucks floating around. Um, consider uh, supporting us at uh, Patreon to Patreon slash what happened podcast. And as always, like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Write us a review. Tell a friend. That's the big one. Tell a friend. Tell your history teacher. Tell your history teacher's son. Uh, pet your history teacher's dog. And tell the dog about the What Happened podcast. Until next time. <laughs> have a good one. This has been the What Happened podcast. What happened?